The Fields of Home by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1953, Chapter 18, I Meet Annie. Lord God, I give you thanks that um, I uh, have time to read this, even as we just say goodbye to uh, friends that left today, as we wait for Isabel to head off to college later this week, and Lord, um, you're directing our steps through all of life. Be gracious. Watch over the kids and grandkids. Make us ready for the wedding at the beginning of February. And Lord, uh, guide and direct our steps uh, in all that we uh, read and think about and do. In Jesus' name, amen. With no bees to hunt, Grandfather nearly drove the yellow colt and me crazy. Instead of coming to the high field only for an hour in the morning, he'd show up half a dozen times a day. I'd no more than get the colt settled down for, from one fit of rearing and balking till Grandfather would come back, take the plow out of my hands, and get everything all mixed up again. And I couldn't do anything to please him. And once, <clears throat> when I happened to mention strawberries, he shouted, Don't you never durst to let me hear you say strawberries again. How many times do I have to tell you this is hayland? Ain't never been nothing else since Father cleared it. Strawberries, great thunderation, garden sass. Grandfather even yelled at old Bess till she'd follow along behind him with her belly almost dragging on the ground. Millie couldn't please him any better than I could. Saturday evening, she came out to the tie-up while I was milking, and she was boiling mad. What in Tunka got into Thomas off to encampment is more than I know, she blurted. Excepting for them first few days when you come back, he ain't been fit to live with nobody. Never seen the beat of it all my born days. Squawking about the victuals, hiding off in his room to write letters he's scared to let a body see, running out to pass them to the mail carrier instead of posting them in the box. What does he think I be, a stupid busybody? <coughs> Maybe he's getting sick again, I said. Sick. <laughs> Ain't no more sicker than I be. Then she grabbed up the milk bucket and hurried out of, of the tie-up. Sunday didn't start off very well. Millie and Grandfather were both cross at breakfast. As I'd Coming from the morning chores, I stubbed my toe on the back pantry door sill, sill and spilled nearly half the milk on the floor. Grandfather called me heedless, clumsy, and wool-gathering, and Millie called me everything he didn't think of. Before I took the cows to pasture, I decided to stay away from the house till supper time. I went to my room and slipped a few sheets of writing paper, some envelopes, and a pencil into the front of my shirt. The astrakhan apples were turning red on the tree in the corner of the orchard, so I climbed the lane wall and filled my pockets. Then, when I got to the pasture, I went hunting for a good place to do a little letter writing myself. Grandfather's hidden field was really two fields, shaped like an hourglass. It was down beyond the maple grove and the hemlock woods, and was entirely walled in by tall pines. Long ago, it had been a hayfield, but it was run out. The bars were always down, and it was part of the pasture. The roadway that led to it was nothing but an overgrown set of wheel tracks, through the woods. I decided the hidden field would be a good place for riding and started following along the wheel ruts. I'd gone as far as the hemlock woods, just beyond the sugar house at the edge of the maples, when I noticed a flat table of gray stone farther up the hill. I remembered grandfather's telling about the granite outcropping, so I climbed up to see what it was like. It was a beautiful place for riding. A solid ledge of gray-blue granite crowned the highest point on the farm. The top of the ledge was almost as flat and smooth as though it had been a, as though it had been planed, and was as large as the foundation of a good-sized house. On the west, it seemed to swell out of a hedge of junipers. At the north were the maples, 
a few white birches and growing uh, grew from a single uh, no and rising above them the great green dome of the three oaks that grew from a single stump to the east the ledge broke off in irregular steps to the top of the hemlock covered hillside and southward the thick tops of the young pines billowed away like a tossing green sea to meet their older brothers at the edge of the hidden field i promised to write mother and uncle levi when I'd slipped the paper in the front of my shirt, I'd been going to tell them that Grandfather wasn't sick any longer, that I couldn't do anything to please him, and that I thought I'd better come home right away. Sitting there on the steps, with the ledge for a table, and the smell of juniper and pine and hemlock in the air, I couldn't seem to find the words I wanted to write. I took an apple out of my pocket <clears throat> and began eating it while I thought about what I was going to say. The seeds were just turning brown, and the juice was tart. It squirted every time... My teeth bit through the red skin. The core was still pretty good-sized when the squirrel began scolding me at me from a limb of the nearest maple tree. I asked him if he thought his name was Thomas, but he only flipped his tail and ducked away to the far side of the tree trunk. Then, from the first one side of the trunk and then the other, he would stick his head out and scold some more. I had all day, so there was no hurry about the letters. I put a stone on the paper and took the apple core over to the maple. I laid it on the ground three or four feet from the near side of the trunk. They went back to lie on the edge and see how long before the squirrel would dare to come down for it. I don't think it was a question of daring at all. I think it was flirt flirting. One minute, he would pop his nose out from behind the tree trunk, not more than two feet above the ground, cock his head on one side, then the other, blink his eyes, and chatter. The next minute, he would scold at me from a branch 40 feet above the ground, flip his tail, and bark, as if he were daring me to come up and try to catch him. I didn't make a sound or move a muscle, but lay there on my stomach watching the little fellow. I don't know how long I'd lain there, but the squirrel had been up and down the tree a dozen times when the tone of his chattering changed and he stopped paying any attention to me. He would run out a little way on the big limb that reached toward the hemlocks, scold crossly, snap his tail hard, then scurry back and flatten himself against the far side of the trunk, but in plain sight from where I was lying. There's only faintest breath of breeze moving, I couldn't be sure from what direction it came, so I wet a finger on my tongue, held it up in front of my face, and watched to see which side would dry first. It was the side toward the hemlocks, toward the spot the squirrel had been watching and scolding at. I was downwind from it, and no animal hiding there could scent me. I'd seen a red fox one evening when I went to the, for the cows, and was pretty sure he was somewhere in the hemlocks, and that the squirrel had seen him. I belly-hooked carefully toward the hemlock edge of the outcropping, and then my heart began pounding. Annie Little Hale was standing behind a hemlock trunk, peeking around it and watching the squirrel tree. She wasn't more than 25 yards from me. Her black hair rippled in a cascade over her shoulders, and her face was the prettiest I had ever seen. It wasn't white like Millie's, and it wasn't tanned dark like mine, but was light golden brown and there was a glow of red in her lips and on her cheeks. As I watched her, with my chin pressed close against the granite, she drew her lips back from her teeth and made a ticking sound at the squirrel. They were as white and gleaming as a rift of snow caught in the folds of a brown oak leaf. When I was a little boy, Mother used to sing snatches of an old song that I always liked. She only sang it when she was spinning, and never more than three verses, but she sang them over and over to the rhythm of the wheel. And always, with the first word of every alternate line, she'd take one step forward and let the newly spun length of yarn wind up the, on the spindle. 
As I lay there watching Annie, the words and music of the old song came into my head and kept going over and over. Nut-brown maiden, thou hast a ruby lip to kiss. Nut-brown maiden, thou hast a ruby lip. A ruby lip is thine, love, the kissing of its mine, love. Nut-brown maiden, thou hast a ruby lip. I didn't realize that my head was bobbing in rhythm to the song till Annie turned my way quickly. Her face looked startled for half a second. Then she said, you're Ralph, aren't you? Maybe it was from thinking of the song about her lips. Anyway, my heart began pounding again, and I tried to swallow before I could say, and, and yes, and your little Annie Littlehale, I saw you driving the cows. As soon as I'd said it, I felt foolish. Of course she knew I'd seen her driving the cows. She waved to Millie and me when we were haying. Annie might have been startled when she first saw me there on the ledge, but it didn't bother her long. She began picking her way toward me over the hummocky floor of the hemlock woods and talking all the way. I heard the squirrel barking from way down by the tree where Mr. Gould's swarm of bees nested, she said. I was afraid our cat might be after him. We've got one that loves to catch squirrels. Some days I'm going to catch him in the act and teach him a good lesson. The nearer she came, the prettier she was. Her wavy black hair seemed to spring as she stepped, and her eyes were as bright, were a bright coppery brown. I couldn't just lie there dumb, and all I could think to say was, I thought you were a fox. Because my hair's so red, she asked and laughed. I wouldn't want it red. It's prettier black. I told her as I rolled over and sat up. I've always liked black hair. When I turned over, a couple of apples had fallen out of my pockets and were rolling on the ledge. Annie saw them as she began climbing the big step of the outcropping. She held one hand up for me to help her, and she said, And I like red apples. Astrakhan's, aren't they? Ours aren't ripe yet. Oh, you're writing letters. I'll only stop long enough to eat an apple. We ate all the apples while Annie and I sat there on the ledge, and we didn't even notice when the squirrel came down and took my first apple core. Then we went for a walk through the pines, around the hidden field, and along the brook that ran beyond it. Annie knew so much more about the woods, the flowers, the birds, and the wild animals than I did that it made me feel sort of stupid. She could name every bird we saw or heard, could imitate the song or call of most of them, and knew the signs of all the animals. Once, where the bank was soft and bare beside the brook, she pointed to a track that looked as if a tiny baby had laid its hand there. Raccoon, she told me, a good big one. He was fishing last night. See where the grass is matted by that gravelly bend? He must have, he must come here often. That's where he wets his food before he eats it. Raccoons don't have any saliva, as we and other animals do, so he has to wet his food before he can swallow it. A raccoon always has one place that he likes better than any other in all the world. He may go away and leave it for a long time, but he'll always come back. If anyone was mean enough, he could trap this one here, where the grass is matted. You won't ever trap him, will you, Ralph? <clears throat> I told her I'd never trap him. And then, to keep from seeming too ignorant, I told Annie a few stories about Colorado, the ranches I'd worked on, and the roundups I'd ridden in. It was nearly 10 o'clock when I left her at Little Hale's Pasture Bars, and she went running up the lane so she'd be in time to go to Sunday school with her brother. When I went back to the outcropping, I started right in on my letters. The one to mother came out a little too much, came out a little too much birds and raccoons but I kept them out of Uncle Levi's, and I didn't write either of them that I was coming home. I took another walk after I'd finished, but along toward noon, I began to worry that Grandfather might forget to feed the horses. So I went to the barn. He was feeding them when I got there and was still as cross as he had been at breakfast. Where you been and what you been up to? He asked me when I came in. Well, I went for a walk in the wo woods and wrote some letters, I told him. See anybody? Yes, sir. Who? 
Annie Little Hale, what was you doing? Oh, just talking and going for a walk. In the woods? Well, part of the time. Grandfather glared at me and shouted, Don't you never durst let me catch you gallivanting off into the woods with no girls. When you ain't busy working, you stay where I can keep an eye on you. What was you up to? Well, Annie was telling me about the different kinds of bark on different kinds of trees and about birds, and we saw a place where raccoon had been fishing. Did you know that? By thunder, I know that Mary didn't send you down here to go gallivanting about the woods with no girls on the Sabbath. I'll learn you all you need to know about birds and bark. Now fetch some tools and go to taking that fool contraption of yours off the dump cart. That'll keep you out of mischief while I'm busy. I haven't been in any mischief, I told him. And that spreader attachment on the dump cart would save us a lot of... Don't you tell me. Get it off of there. Get it off, I tell you. Won't have no tarnal contraption about this farm. Work saving. Good for nothing. Work never hurt nobody. Grandfather was still grumbling when he jabbed the pitchfork into a corner and stamped off toward the house. Well, we had a pleasant moment in the meadow and on the rock, and then we had to go back to Grandfather. But that is who his grandfather is. I love you guys.